Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Lisa Oppenheim. Her work examines the strikingly rich place where the physicality of photographs, the history of photography, and the archive intersect. Her work is included in Photo Poetics and Anthology at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York. The show, which was curated by Jennifer Blessing and runs through March 23rd, examines how 10 artists use conceptualism-derived ideas to explore studio-based, often still-life, and historically-rooted photography. The exhibition's catalog was published by the Guggenheim. And yep, this is the second time in two weeks we're featuring an artist from the show. Why? Well, we wanted to have both Lisa Oppenheim and Sarah Vanderbeek on, but also it's pretty rare to find a group show in which nine of the 10 artists on view are women. So we thought we'd visit the show twice. Lisa Oppenheim's work has been the subject of solo exhibitions all over the world, including at the Frack, Champagne-Ardenne, and in the Kunstverein in Hamburg. For several years now, she's been in seemingly every group exhibition that includes photography, including Light Paper Process, Reinventing Photography at the Getty, and the 2013 New Photography Exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. On the second segment, Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden curator Valerie Fletcher discusses Marvelous Objects, Surrealist Sculpture from Paris to New York, which is on view through February 15th. The exhibition examines the history of surrealist sculpture, starting with its roots in Dada and continuing through the work of David Smith and Alexander Calder in New York. The show revises the usual view of surrealist sculpture as being rooted mostly in the assemblage of found objects to present a much broader arc of surrealist object making. It's a terrific show. The exhibition's excellent catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. But first, Lisa Oppenheim, after the break. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Noah Purifoy Junk Data, on view January 30th through April 10th. Junk Data is the first major museum retrospective of Purifoy's work in almost 20 years. Bringing his fascinating career into focus like never before, the exhibition features more than 50 of his vibrant works dating to the late 1950s to the early 2000s. Originally organized and curated by Franklin Sermons and Yael Lipschitz for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, this is the exhibition's only stop outside of Los Angeles. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Dallas Museum of Art will serve as the exclusive American venue for a new exhibition of works by Jackson Pollock, the first in over three decades to survey a phase of his work known as the Black Paintings. Jackson Pollock Blind Spots explores this relatively neglected yet wholly compelling part of the artist's practice and offers a new perspective on the work of one of the most famous artists of the 20th century. Jackson Pollock Blind Spots is on view November 20th to March 20th. Visit dma.org for more information. And we're back. Lisa Oppenheim, welcome to the Modern Art Units podcast. Thank you. You often use the very things in your artworks to make those artworks. So when we see the sun in your heliograms pictures, we understand you use the light of the sun to make those specific objects. Ditto, say, the moon in your lunograms. So using an even more recent work as an example, landscape portraits, some North American trees, which dates to year before last now, 2014. Could you describe what you did to make those works? Because I think maybe that would be a good introduction for people into kind of the rest of the things we're going to talk about. Well, actually, I have an exhibition of those works up right now at my gallery in New York, Tanya Benacht Arts, up through February 20th. And 
how those works are made, the series that you talk about is like actually kind of the first iteration of that work, but the more recent developments, I've, I've how I've been making them is I take very paper thin slices of wood. So wood that's cut so thin that you can, you know, that light comes through it. And I use those as essentially as negatives to make contact prints. So then the wood is placed directly on top of photographic paper and glass is placed on top of the wood. So the whole thing is kind of smushed down and it's exposed with just a, you know, a normal darkroom light and a larger lamp. And so what happens is the, a, what, what gets registered on the paper is an inverse of the uh, amount of light that can come through the wood. So the places where there's more light that can come through, the image is darker. Places where there's less light, the image is lighter. So a very light wood, like, for instance, maple, will have will produce a much darker image than a dark wood, say, walnut. And what I've been doing is I've been putting these these photographs, I guess they're photograms, in frames that have a relationship to the wood represented in the image. So the poplar frame are framed with poplar wood and the and the uh, walnut it's framed with, with walnut wood. And so you end up with this situation where the it's usually inverted. So if the wood is very dark and then the image is light, so there's a kind of there, there's a contrast there that I also thought was interesting. That it was a sort of inverted relationship between what you see in the object and how it registers on the photo paper. And the second step I've been doing in the recent work is sort of I've been using the same slice of wood as as a negative four times. And so I do two prints that are face up and then I flip the wood and I do another two prints on the other side. And then from that kind of I create these sort of mirrored kind of quasi psychedelic compositions. And the reason for that is thinking about you know, how it's sort of human nature to read faces and bodies and animals or whatever into these patterns. So on one hand, of course, they're images of a landscape, thus landscape, and they're also become, in a strange way, portraits, both portraits of the tree and also portraits of whatever it is that one projects into that space. And of course, I'm interested in this collapse between uh, this this collapsing of what is represented in an image and how those images are made. So the example you gave of the lunograms, those are it's images of the moon exposed with moonlight, or in the case of the heliograms, images of the sun exposed with sunlight, and and these are you know images of wood which is essentially what what photographic paper is it's paper which is made from wood and frames are also made of wood so again i'm trying to kind of collapse this distinction between what is in an image and how it's made 
the way you install them, the way you present the finished works, you get a positive and negative within the work, a positive and negative representation. So it also kind of loops back onto the history of, of making both picture and print. Yes, exactly. So I have a couple questions that I want to ask related to how the landscape portraits relate to heliograms and lunograms. But, but first, with the landscape portraits, did you know what the prints would look like when you were done? No. I mean, I still don't. I mean, I, I'm actually going to my wood guys in Michigan to get some more wood. I always have to do tests because you can kind of have a sense of it, maybe kind of holding the piece up to light. But, I mean, it's interesting. One of my favorites, favorite trees I've worked with so far has been poplar, which is really quite interesting because you look at like poplar, you know, it's it's a wood that framers won't even use because it's kind of ugly, you know, and it makes the most beautiful photographs in a way that is very, you couldn't even tell just by even holding it up to the light, like where the lines in the photogram will be is kind of unpredictable. So the surprise is what in the wood, where in the grain or something is, is absorbing light? The wood, yeah, because for instance, like I've used like eastern red cedar, which of course is red, and red, red does not absorbs a lot of light. It doesn't allow lots of light through, so it acts as if it was a much, so even though the wood itself is not, is a kind of more of a light pink color, um, it doesn't transmit that much light because the red absorbs so much of the light. I had intended to ask about the lunograms and the heliograms in which there appears to be an element, not of chance, but an element of maybe a certain lack of control where you can't control what what the finished object is going to look at because variables include, you know, moonlight and sunlight and time. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there, you know, the the landscape portraits are as not predictable as the lunograms and the heliograms were. Yeah, well, they're in some ways they're even less predictable because there's not even a negative that I'm working with. So, you know, there's no way of also with these works, once they've been printed, the sheets are so thin that they fall apart. So there's there the sheets of the wood. The sheets of wood, yeah. They're so delicate that yeah, that they just start to flake and disintegrate, you know, just from being handled. So So you're having these things cut thinner than a veneer, much thinner. Yeah, than a yeah. Veneer. They're I think they're made for paper, like as paper, but as sort of novelty. So for like, you know, wedding invitations and stuff like this. And I just get the thinnest cut wood. Most of them have backings on them if they were to be sort of used for their purpose of going through, you know, a printer or something. But I get mine without any backings. And therefore, it's completely transparent and also super delicate. So so really, the, the substrate, so it becomes an index of something that no longer exists essentially after it's made. So your the ideas behind the, the process that gets you to the heliograms and the lunograms and and the tree portraits, is it an is is it a place you've come to more through theory or more through the history of the medium? Well, I think it's actually more through the darkroom. So I mean, I, of course, I read a lot about, and you know, I'm very interested in the history of photography. I read quite a bit about it, but. 
I'm also a real practitioner. I mean, I like just being in there and messing around. And I think it's what you mentioned before about things coming from accidents. Um, you know, I'll just get an idea and just play with it and see what happens, you know. So in some way, I think a lot of my work just comes from experiment. Were there things you tried with the North American Trees works that were experiments that failed that took you to where they ended yeah, up? Yeah, of course. I mean, that, that's true with, it, with, 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 with everything. I mean, how did you come up with a guy who, like, it, it seems to me to be a really clever step to find a guy who cut wood that thin and to use him the way you use I think it. I had the idea first that I wanted to do this. And then I Googled around and I found a guy who did it, you know, and he just happens to be, I think, you know, one of the only people to do it. And so I kind of developed a friendship with him, even though we come from extremely different backgrounds. I'm a nice Jewish girl from New York with very left of center politics. And he is a fundamentalist Christian <laughs> from upstate Michigan, from upstate Michigan, with very right of center politics. So. <laughs> there were some interesting conversations, but he's, you know, he became a very good friend through this. He's a wonderful guy. And so, you know, and it becomes like all of these projects also become a way of, you know, for me to sort of connect with people in a way, even in, even with projects that seem very hermetic in a way, like the landscape portraits are really kind of evolve out of, you know, a, a relationship I have with this wood guy who supplies me with the material. And he'll, he'll say, you know, oh, Lisa, would, Lisa, a bunch of apple wood just came in. It's really beautiful. You know, I'll send you a sample. You know, so all of these things end up being real collaborations in the end, even if it doesn't look like it. Or those, the landscape portraits, I do all the test prints myself, but I have a printer, a really wonderful printer in New York, who can kind of tease things out of an image that they're that I'm completely incapable of doing. So all of these projects are also yeah kind of just emerge out of a, a set of social relations. So there's still a lot of history in in these works, whether it's the trees works or or the work you've done with lace, lots of Henry Fox Talbot. At some point, I'm guessing you became a little bit of a photography history nerd. Was that something that was always in you? Was that something that you you went to one grad school and several postgraduate programs on several continents. Was that something you, you discovered that well, way? Well, actually, I started off as a different kind of nerd, as an experimental film nerd, uh, which is... A lover of structuralism. Yes, a structuralist film nerd. And so that kind of lends itself to other kinds of nerdish art practices, I guess. So in some ways, I kind of, in terms of my um, nerdiness, I think I definitely identify with that kind of nerdiness more than sort of photo history, because I, I really never had any real formal engagement. I, even though I went to all of these schools, I didn't, I didn't actually ever study photography or photo history in any formal way. It was more something that I came to through the back door, through experimental film, actually. So my encountering of Fox Talbot was more thinking about, say, the way that Ken Jacobs appropriated the Lumiere. So it's like looking, if you're going to be working in a medium to just sort of trace, trace its trajectory in a way that makes sense for your own work. So in some ways, what I kind of advocate is sort of making a personal canon, you know, and 
So maybe these references to Stieglitz and to Fox Talbot and, you know, Anna Atkins or well, I can think of a couple of other early practitioners really comes from kind of creating my own uh, historic, like creating a like historical trajectory that sort of led to me in my own practice. So it's really creating your own set of antecedents, you know, or choosing the ones that are there in a way that makes sense for one's own practice. One of the things I noticed about the Guggenheim Photopoetics show is that a number of the artists, almost all of them, might seem indebted to Michael Snow. And given your interest in structuralist filmmaking, is Michael Snow important? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, Michael Snow is He's a great artist. Yeah, I think about his work a lot. I mean, I think more more of a direct influence on my work was probably more Hollis Frampton than than Michael Snow. And maybe I even came to photography now that I'm thinking about it through through thinking about Frampton's relationship between the still and moving image. But yeah, I mean, there's not a big leap from Michael Snow to Hollis Frampton. So no, 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 buds. Buds, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, the third of the group was Richard Serra. You know, and you, you, you know, those early, early Sarah videos, you see him playing on the same field that, that Frampton and Snow are. Yeah. So switching gears a bit to your use of photography archives, such as in the work about uh, setting suns that the Guggenheim inquired, you've mined archives as elite as those at national museums and as democratic as those at Flickr. What is your process for going through them? Are you looking for something specific before you get there? Or is your idea more to spend hours of looking and to let your eyes lead your brain to ideas? I think it's a bit of both. I think I, um, well, I mean, I'm the internet, one can just easily get down very, go down various rabbit holes of searches. And it's very hard to know if you're in, how, how an idea originates in an internet search. So I think that maybe I take that logic to all the different kinds of archives that I look at. So maybe I'll go in thinking that like how I was doing research at the Getty kind of on the, on the kind of maybe on the, on the more kind of, you know, a uh, high art institutional end of the spectrum, as opposed to doing a search on Flickr. I think I just was curious as to what they had. So I was like, oh, you know, I'm interested in, I don't know, Stieglitz. They're like, oh, we have tons of Stieglitz. It's like, oh, you're interested in Fox Talbot. Oh, yeah, we have some of those lace calotypes. Yeah, we have we have like 10 of them. You know, and it was just more like kind of a kid in a candy store thing. And then um, I think then after a couple of days of that, I just started to narrow my search down according to categories of things that I knew that I was interested in already. So in some ways, it's always a little bit of both, I think. The Getty's a good place for that thought process because their storage is eight feet or six feet from their photo study. I on. know. I mean, that, that the, Getty, the, the Getty collection, you know, they don't like it when you call it an archive. I've called it an archive. Like, no, it's not an archive. It's a collection. And so I was like, okay. But, the, um, but their collection of of early photography is really, I mean, it's the, it's stupendous. It's the best I've ever encountered. And just to be able to, you know, go down a rabbit hole in real space as one would do in the internet is some, something that can be done in very few 
places and the Getty is definitely one of them. So it's almost sort of, yeah, like physicalizing an internet search. Yeah, no, it is. And because you to, to, to walk into that storeroom there is to, I mean, Google is overwhelming because all you have is a search box and kind of the same thing from like the Mets Museum collection site. But at the Getty, it's physically overwhelming because you can see all these boxes and have this weird mix of curiosity and visual need that can be over just you know overwhelming in all the best ways. And I, I should note you were included in the Getty's Light Paper Process Reinventing Photography show that was on view in 2015. When that show opened, we had Marco Breuer on the program. So correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I could very well be wrong, but I think you've intentionally mined the work of named or famous photographers almost not at all. Maybe the exception was for the Liverpool Biennial in the UK when there was an archive of, of one chap, not a famous photographer, and they had 200,000 of his pictures. Are you consciously looking for work made by unnamed or non-famous makers? Um, I think I kind of do both. Even thinking about the show at the Guggenheim, I mean, those Flickr, the Flickr photographs are all from soldiers. Of the setting suns. Yeah, the setting suns are all from soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan. So they're kind of, you know, could be anyone. And then the other work, killed negatives after Walker Evans are all Walker Evans outtakes. So I think I try and unbridge kind of the, the known, the unknown, you know. That's a series in which uh, Roy Stryker at the Farm Security Administration had punched holes in pictures to prevent them from being published. And you went back and inserted what might have been in the hole in the hole as part of your remaking of the, re or maybe addressing uh, the pictures. So I think I, and in my smoke series, I also, the, the work that's on display at the Guggenheim, which has a very long title, which I, I can't. Yeah. I wasn't going to bother either. That's where we're going next. Though. Yeah. Um, Ferguson, <laughs> which was, which was in, I think it's a, an image in which a protester throws back a smoke bomb at the police in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. So that's, so that's from an unknown, I mean, it's from a, you know, it's from a, a staff photographer at the Guardian, but I forget who, who wasn't, wasn't a famous name at all. So I do, I am interested in both the sort of the known and the unknown practitioner, you know, I mean, everyone is a photographer, so there's a lot to choose from. And sometimes, sometimes the identity of the photographer is very important. For instance, in the Walker Evans work, because then, of course, Sherry Levine made a famous series called After Walker Evans in the early 1980s, where she rephotographs Walker Evans' work. So then I'm also rephotographing Walker Evans' photographs in a different way. So the identity of Walker Evans became very important in that project, mostly because of the reference to Sherry Levine. So the identity of the artist is sometimes important to me and sometimes it's not. You've made a number uh, of pictures of smoke, as you mentioned. And until I saw the titles, which as you noted, can be very long, I had read them or many of them as clouds. There's a long history of, of clouds in photography, whether it's Stieglitz's equivalents or 
the way in the 19th century, artists would add clouds to pictures in the darkroom. Edward Mybridge, probably the, or George Barnard are probably the two best examples. Are you okay with, or do you want people to read them as clouds or both or? Well, I think I want people to, you know, experience the work visually first. And so you approach an image and then I like the idea of having someone's expectations kind of played with. So in the way that smoke and clouds sort of look the same, and especially because of the Stieglitz equivalence reference, it wouldn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that, that that's how they're read at first. And then through like a secondary investigation, through a reading of the title, and the title of those works are really part of the work in a way that they're not just ancillary. It's not just a title of something. It's it's the titles I think of as sort of captions to like... Like an FSA picture. Yeah, like an FSA picture or like a news story, like a, in the newspaper. The the titles are what position the the work in a particular context. So, yeah, so it's, it's fine. And I don't, would never expect the viewer to be able to locate the the image exactly and that's why i also try and keep out information that would allow a viewer to be able to have sort of a better read of what was going on without the caption i want the caption to really do that work so it kind of sounds like in some ways your interest in the intersection of smoke and clouds maybe relates closer to Impressionist painting where a Monet or a Pizarro would kind of allow smoke and clouds to become one as a little bit of a pointed critique, but also as kind of a pointing out that we have a new ability in landscape. Yeah, exactly. You've, um, like, like photographers have been since the 19th century, you've made pictures rooted in astronomy, such as the lunograms. So in the, in the 19th century, Photography was also often very closely aligned with science. In fact, quite often to do science was to do photography and, and, and vice versa. There wasn't really more than a hair's breadth between them. Are you interested in the ways in which photography was used as science or is that ancillary just kind of happens to, to be a, there in, in a shared path? Well, as the daughter of a scientist, I'm sure there's something... Uh, my father is a scientist, and actually my introduction to photography was through his... We had, we had a dark room in the house, and he had a dark room at work, and so when I would visit him at work, it would, he would be taking, often be taking photographs of microscopic organisms with an electromicroscope and making prints from that. So that was really my introduction to photography. So for me, I think just because of my own biography, science and photography have always been very linked personally to me so what kind of scientist is he he's a microbiologist and biochemist does he read the science into your pictures? yes so he knows he gets yeah the... yeah so he's sort of he explains so when i uh, when i was doing the sort of silver the silver plating of the photographs for the lunograms and the heliograms he would explain to me chemically how that worked, you know, in a way that I just didn't understand. So in that way, yeah, it, I think this, the scientific aspect of it is more maybe, at least for me, it's more biographical than it is like a kind of conscious investigation. Oh, but there's, 
but it's there. It's definitely there. I mean, in a lot of the work, it's yeah, there. Yeah, it's definitely there. And I think I think I'm also kind of interested in this moment, you know, of you know, of both photography and film before it becomes solidified. So like pre-code cinema or photography when people were still trying to figure out, you know, what what the what the chemistry was going to be, you know. And there's and it literally, you know, it wasn't fixed. And and there is something in that in that moment before a kind of protocol is set where there is room for lots of investigation and imagination and yeah, experimentation in a way that there isn't kind of when one looks at sort of photography, maybe say after the 1920s or 1930s. The great exhibition, the great recent exhibition on photography and science is brought to light a show Corey Keller did for SF MoMA back in 2008 or so. We'll have a link to that catalog on manpodcast.com. We've talked a couple times about the Killed Negatives after Walker Evans series, the ones, the series that features pictures that Roy Stryker punched with a hole punch to prevent their being published. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on my own project about a 19th century photographer who was kind of the Andreas Gursky of his day in working with really big images. And, and I spent a lot of time thinking about the way pictures physically exist. How important was the way those semi-Walker Evans, semi-Roy Stryker objects, how important was their physical reality that that you could hold pictures that had been physically acted on and, I don't know if defaced is the right word, but it sort of is? I think actually in those pictures, it wasn't the images that were acted on, it was the negatives themselves. Oh, right. That's right. That's so, right. So when I ordered those negatives from the Library of Congress, I got copy negatives. So to be honest, I didn't, you know, because they're... So I think it was more that, like, that that then the photograph became a kind of, not just a record of the of the image that was taken, but a record of its attempted destruction. So there was this sort of, it was a kind of a, a doubling. Uh, so there were kind of two different moments that were recorded in the image, the the moment of of the photographs making and the moment of its attempted destruction. So I think that that's what was very important to me in that work. So it wasn't necessarily the physical the physicality of the negative itself, it was the the signs that it had been acted upon. You do tend to get put into these shows about destruction though. Yeah, I mean I get all kinds of I get all kinds of like I realized actually there was one point last summer where I, I was put, I was in a show, I was in the, it was in the show at the Getty, which is about the materiality of photography. So, And really destroying the material of photography to make a new photography. Yeah. To make a, and then yeah. I was in a, a show of Mass Mocha called The Dying of the Light, which is about kind of film about the death of film. And then I was in some other show at the same time in Europe about textiles about sort of text, you know, textiles about the making and, you know, of textiles. And so I found myself in this funny situation where I was like, I was in these very kind of materially driven shows about in three different media at the same time. So in that case, if I'm going to be pigeonholed, I'd rather be pigeonholed in lots of different areas, you know? <laughs> it struck me as kind of, I don't know, wince-worthy or 
surprising, I don't know, I'm not sure what the right word is, that you end up in so many of these shows about degeneration when I don't think of you as being motivated by degeneration. Are you interested in degeneration? Or is it that, you know, your work just touches enough, you know, points on on a grid that, that you fit a lot of things? I think maybe a bit of both. I mean, I am interested in how how material sort of bears a trace over time. So like, yeah, some like a photograph, like in the Walker Evans series is not just a photograph of a moment. It's, it's a photograph of all the moments sort of in between the image that was taken and how and where and when it's viewed. So I think there's a certain amount of degeneration sort of just by nature, you know, with time. So I think any artist that deals with sort of material over time is going to necessarily have to deal with degeneration of some sort. In that way, I think it's it's definitely in the work and also it becomes something to, you know, it becomes a curatorial category or something which is not something I have control over. No, it, but it definitely has in the last kind of two or three years, especially around photography. I mean, the ICP, the International Center of Photography in New York, did a show around the kind of that same idea. It's it's become a thing. Finally, and to kind of close on a note that is more generative, <laughs> you coined the words heliogram and lunogram to kind of describe or to name two two kinds of things you made. Why did you want to come up with, I don't know, your own words, so to speak? I mean, there is a history of that in photography, but your answer may be completely unrelated to that history, of course. Well, I think I kind of noticed that there were, there were like, you know, there were heliographs and you know, there, were, there, were, there, were, there were names for it. It's not... Greek and Latin rooted. Yeah, Greek yeah. and Latin rooted names. And, you know, everyone, I think part of it was vanity. People wanted their own Rayogram yeah, exactly. after Man Ray. Yeah, exactly. People wanted their their own name or their own terminology attached to their own system. So maybe I thought that that was kind of funny, which is why I did it too. <laughs> and do you because I find it funny. I find it. I mean, one of the things I'd written in my notes was to to ask you the trick question: "Quote, what 19th century artist coined the words heliogram and lunogram?" I mean, there is a a funny cheekiness to it. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was like it was that was my own kind of making fun at, uh, at at the vanity of doing something like that. Did people get it, or did they assume it was old? I think people assume that it's old. <laughs> it's just okay too. <laughs> but I, I like this idea of being able to make work that is both named and sort of, you know, seems from looks like it could be made anytime. That isn't particularly located in any historical moment that kind of is expansive over time. Like with the smoke images, those look like, I mean, if I would, maybe if I didn't know and I encountered them, I would probably think that maybe they were made in the, made in the thirties. And then all of a sudden there's some text about like, you know, a riot in London in 2011 or an explosion in a, you know, oil production facility in 1873. So I, I, it's an, it's important for me to make work that kind of exists outside of time. That's interesting because for the for the smoke works, I would have gone to to Moybridge because of kind of the silvery edges of the clouds in in, in Moybridge's, which lined up mentally for me with the silvery edges in the in in, in 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 your pieces. So 
I mean, I was even off by 70 years on the on the guess you thought I would, the, the viewer would have. <laughs> but you see, but you can't control that. I mean, and I think that that, that is something where where I, I want that kind of, you know, hopefully a kind of playfulness to come across is that, you know, I don't try and control a reading or I just try and kind of maybe steer an interpretation rather than like. Is that one of the reasons that you spend so much time around black and white or non-color because it extends that window? Maybe. I mean, I also do a fair amount of color work. You do, you do, you do, you do. I don't. I didn't mean to suggest you didn't, but you were speaking of the clouds and it made me think of yeah, it. Yeah, maybe. And also, I mean, to be honest, like, I like the sort of dark, I mean, I, I like the fun of the kind of dark room manipulation. And with color, just by the, by the nature of its being, you can't really do that as much. I mean, technically... I guess if I was to be printing color photographs and exposed trays, maybe, but, you know, I do hope to live to be a ripe old age and don't think that that's it's pretty toxic stuff to be kind of meddling around in. So I just print color conventionally. So that maybe makes for less of a, that kind of takes out a kind of an, and an opportunity to sort of manipulate the image. Well, I hope you make it to a ripe old age too. Lisa Oppenheim, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. On view now at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, a focus exhibition featuring the work of Joyce Pensato. Recognizing the emblematic power of cartoons and their ability to critique aspects of contemporary culture, Pensado freezes and modifies some of the most iconic American cartoons and comic book characters, isolating them to further comment on American society and its anxieties. She works in an industrial palette of black, white, and silver enamel through January 31st. For more information, visit themodern.org. France's Sun King, Louis XIV, decorated his palaces with glittering tapestries, handwoven by renowned artists. This collection was the finest the world had ever seen, using gold and silver wrapped thread to proclaim the king's magnificence. Woven gold Tapestries of Louis XIV, on view at the Getty, features rare loans from the French state and evokes the brilliance of the Sun King's court. Visit in person or online to discover these larger-than-life tapestries and how they were made. A catalog of the same name brings the exhibition into your home. To learn more, visit getty.edu. Welcome back. My next guest is Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden curator Valerie Fletcher. She's organized Marvelous Objects, Surrealist Sculpture from Paris to New York, which is on view in Washington through February 15th. Fletcher's previous projects include retrospectives of Alberto Giacometti and Isamu Noguchi, solo shows of artists such as Tim Hawkinson, Alexander Calder, Joseph Cornell, and Barbara Hepworth, and historical group shows that examine utopianism and modern art and Latin American modernism. Valerie Fletcher, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Right at the outset of your catalog essay, you note that when it comes to surrealism, painting, drawing, photography, and film have kind of been the things we tend to think about and that historians have studied, while sculpture has long played last fiddle. As soon as I read that, I thought to myself, of course that's right. Why had I not thought of that before? Why is that? Why is it that sculpture has played last fiddle? Well, there's a couple of factors that feed into that. 
One is the sheer lack of the physical objects in many cases. So much of what uh, was made uh, in the mostly the 1930s, but as early as the late 1920s and into the Second World War, just didn't survive. They Some of them exist as authorized replicas by the artists themselves. But the vast majority that did survive don't travel. So if you want to see them, you have to go to umpteen museums, most of them in Europe. And often those works aren't on view there or in the U.S., with the notable exception of the Art Institute of Chicago, which is you know, their modern wing has an amazing display of one of the great collections. But you can't borrow those works. It's it's hard to study them from afar. Uh, the other thing is, is just quite frankly, when you come up against the kind of entrenched view of what surrealism was as a movement, intellectually, psychologically, biographically, etc., politically. You, there's so much stuff going on that you're not necessarily looking at the objects anymore. By objects, I mean any work of art, but specifically three-dimensional objects. So they tend to be perceived as adjuncts to the paintings, the drawings, the films, the photographs. You identify kind of three ways in which artists, we might call surrealist sculptors or who did sculpture and who were surrealists, three kind of veins in which they worked. Assemblage, organic abstraction, or as we now call it, biomorphism, and finally kind of more figure addressing or figurative work. Did those three things overlap or did they kind of move in procession as we move from the out of the teens and into the 20s and 30s? That's really a great question because when you read the established literature, it sounds as if A, organic abstraction didn't really exist or play an important role which is factually incorrect. And B, there's a sense that there, is, there was a progression, and that progression follows uh, the kind of dicta uh, by André Breton and his uh, leadership role in the official group. In fact, when, it's one of the things that got me started on this whole project was I was doing research on, on, on ARP, and I kept finding all this, these examples, exhibitions, publications from the 20s and into the 30s, but really in the 20s. You know, Breton thought he was one of the great innovators. Miro totally changed his, his style because of ARP. And yet he is treated as if he's a non-entity uh, in the surrealist movement, whether it's official or otherwise. And so I began looking at where organic abstraction began and, and how it evolved or interwove with other uh, veins, as you call them. And that's that's actually, that was the motivation for this show, was I just couldn't believe how skewed things were, that there was, the view has been that there is a so-called surrealist object. And yes, it's a term they use, but organic abstraction and objects were not uh, distinct entities. I define them as such in my show for clarity. But ARP's organic abstractions were called objects by him and by surrealists. So that that's what sort of got to me was that there was an overemphasis on the found object assemblages, you know, the iconic lobster telephone and so forth. And when you look at the early photographs, uh, many of them unpublished about what was actually shown in the early exhibitions, they were side by side, cheek by jowl. And then that third vein you mentioned, <laughs> it's epitomizing this one terrific photograph by Man Ray of the 1933 exhibition of the Surrealists in Paris, and that was a show designed expressly to introduce the Surrealist objects, by which they meant not just found objects and assemblages, 
but everything that was three-dimensional in any way, reliefs, freestanding, what have you. And in the midst of it are figurative works of plasters by Alberto Giacometti. So you have biomorphic things next to found object assemblages, and standing right next to them is a nearly life-size female nude in plaster. And so it was that kind of deliberate variety, the, the lack of you know, compartmentalization or rules that fascinated me and I wanted to try and bring forward again. Let me take us back to the beginning-ish of, of the show and the project where uh, you note that surrealist sculpture substantially comes out of Dada. At the risk of oversimplifying it, is there a key figure between Arpi and Dada, if you will, and surrealist sculpture? Again, at the risk of oversimplifying, I, I, try, I set up kind of a, a dialogue, if you will, or dialectic, pick your word, between Arp's early 1916-17 uh, invention of uh, organic abstraction in Zurich and Duchamp's uh, creation of what he later called the assisted ready-mades in New York. And those two sources are what came together in Paris and I think, among other things, for sculpture making, for object making. It was the kind of the synergy of those two things that sort of came together and provided the critical mass. So I don't want to over, you know, emphasize single artists, but really in this case, they were the two originating fountains, if you will. And then along came Giacometti a bit later. Uh, he didn't show up until the late 20s, really. And he was with the group for a very short time. He was only with them for five and a half years. He added, you know, the figurative, the traditional modeling in plaster, and of course the obsession with Freudian sexual fantasies. So it's kind of like two biggies plus a third biggie and you mix them all up and you end up with the 1930s. And I guess maybe Max Ernst in there too, especially with Lop Lop coming out of ARP. Actually, I'm very glad you brought that up because in fact, I would have, I tried <laughs> and would have liked to have had Ernst be the fourth. And when you read the catalog essay and look at the progression of the images, that's the key missing element is there were four and Ernst was the other one. And the one that fascinated me was that Ernst's role in creating objects was part and parcel of his doing uh, other innovative material and, and practice innovations like frottage, collage, and so forth, automatism. And it was Ernst who brought ARP from Zurich, from Switzerland rather, to Paris in February of 1925. And the two of them shared a studio. They were friends since before the war, before the First World War. and Before Ernst had to bomb his, his old neighborhood. Yes, <laughs> before. And that's the other thing, is that, you know, the, the effect of, of World War I on the 1920s is, is fascinating to, to review. But anyway, but if you, the Ernst, the only reason Ernst is not in the show is that his key works from the 1920s are unborrowable. None of the, the museums that hold the few surviving ones will let them travel. And for good reason, they're extremely fragile. He used, he mixed media feathers and paint and glued on pieces of broken plates and, and all sorts of things that just don't travel well. So, no, he's the unsung hero as far as I'm concerned. The other biggie you mentioned is Alberto Giacometti, who enters the story in the late 1920s. What does he do or make that captures the attention of the surrealist circle? 
it's actually quite clear when you go back and chart it sort of month by month, who made what, who saw what, who exhibited what, who went to whose studio, those, you know, those obsessive details we art historians love to uncover. He came in with his own separate viewpoint, meaning he was a deeply neurotic man. I don't need to read both biographies of him to get that. But he brought with him a sudden ability to express in sculpture what was being talked about or written about in terms of uh, psychology, dreams, fantasies, memories. And he did it in ways that were not like anybody else. For example, when he first did Spoon Woman, which is in the show as his first example in 1926, its origins stylistically are African art, but it's all about an icon, if you will, not a flattering icon of woman as primarily a gender and a reproductive organ without limbs, mobility, or apparently even much of a head or brain. And yet it reads almost as organic abstraction. And so his ability to bring something completely separate to the table, his obsession with his 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 mommy issues, if you will, which were considerable, and his difficulty in relating to women as anything other than sexual objects for gratification. He brought that out in a way that, that unleashed a lot of things, some of them eminently forgettable, in my opinion, but he unleashed a willingness to try anything in terms of formats. He did he made sculptures that were like games, interactive games, the famous suspended ball. That piece, uh, it's, you never see it outside of Paris, unfortunately, but it's, it's the piece in 1930-31 that got Dali and Breton, Miro and others, although Miro was already making sculptures, interested in changing course, making kinetic interactive objects, meaning objects, in fact, I think he although he didn't invent the term, I think Giacometti's works were key impetus in coining the phrase surrealist object. You had to play with this piece. You had to touch it, push the ball so it swings back and forth erotically over what is obviously a phallic form below it. And then what people sort of forget is that it's enclosed in a cage. So it's like you're trapped in this, this sexual paradigm. And the other thing is, I was one of the few people who actually played with the thing. It never reaches consummation. It swings back and forth and slows down, but never accomplishes anything, doesn't actually get to its goal. And that sense of frustration, of yearning, of desire without necessarily completion, that's essential to a lot of what you see in sculptures by other artists in the 1930s. In the catalog, you also mentioned that that sculpture introduces movement into European sculpture in, in a way that particularly caught everybody's eye. One of the real moments in the exhibition is the presentation of a woman with her throat cut, the 1932 sculpture from MoMA's collection. It kind of stands for or lies for, I guess, the introduction of violence against women in the show. 1932 is a little late to tie something to World War One. so where does Giacometti's interest in, if that's the right word, violence come from? <laughs> it had nothing to do with the war in, in terms for Giacometti. For him, it was, it was purely personal. His 
his mommy issues and his, as some biographers uh, assert, his erectile dysfunction issues created such anger within him, an anger that he did not, until he joined uh, the Parisian group, did not feel they could be really expressed, at least not openly and not certainly in art. And he later, well, not so much later, related the woman with her throat cut to one of his favorite fantasies. You know, when he couldn't fall asleep, what would he fantasize about? And he was a chronic insomniac, so he fantasized a lot. And he said, well, I love to fantasize about, you know, out in the forest, you know, coming across uh, a mother and her daughter and raping them both and then killing them both. And that's how he drifted off to sleep. So he was a deeply disturbed man when it came to uh, sexual matters. And so that work is really quite personal. What he did, in my opinion, was not just that, because those kind of uh, sexual uh, issues were, were already out there in poetry, literature, in Freudian psychology. But what he did is he created a sculpture that, as a sculpture, is fascinating. Well, I did a Giacometti retrospective at the Hirschhorn way back in 1988, and I did a little experiment with a woman with her throat cut. That is, I placed it on a, a low oval pedestal as it is in the current show. And then I watched people. You know, the Hirschhorn has a lot of tourist visitors who come because they're part of the Smithsonian. And I watched. I deliberately put the label not next to the sculpture. And people would be fascinated, and they'd look at it, and it seems to read like a kind of bizarre, creepy abstraction, like some kind of, you know, crustacean or insect. And then they begin to notice that it's got things like a female torso, and then they look at the label, and, you know, woman with her throat cut, and they look, you know, the first reaction, you can watch it. It's visceral. It's physical. They they gasp, or they step back, or they go, ew! And it's Somehow that ability in that sculpture to be visually compelling, you know, weirdly fascinating and in some ways kind of bizarrely beautiful, and to marry it with truly disturbing violence, offenses against women, wow, that's about as powerful as you can get. And that, that's what Giacometti brought to the table, really, is that intensity of such things and the ability to convey them in visually innovative and fascinating ways. The show moves from that sculpture into spending a good bit of time on surrealism and how it portrays or addresses, probably more portrays, violence against women. Not something we always see in surrealism shows. Why was that important to establish as a dedicated thing? Well, I guess it's one of those things that sort of has bothered me as an art historian is that while feminist historians and critics have rightly pointed out some of the excesses, what bothered me was it's in the mainstream literature on surrealism, it's still kind of accepted as, you know, okay, that's just what it was about. Surrealism was about sex. Well, actually, no, that's not all it was about, not by a long shot. And what I wanted to do in this show, if you notice, you go from Duchamp in the first gallery to Arp in the second gallery to Giacometti, and then you go into this larger gallery where you have all these surrealist assemblages and other works from the 30s, like the Venus de Milo with drawers and so forth. And then there's a very small, deliberately narrow, deliberately claustrophobic space in which 
they're primarily photographs. And when Giacometti left the the movement in early 1935, coincidentally, the, the German graphic designer and photographer, Hans Bellmer, appeared on the scene. And his personal obsessions, not that he indulged in them, but his obsession with prepubescent and then pubescent girls in the abstract in the form of dolls, that stepped in when Giacometti stepped out. And as I began to study when Belmer's photographs, how exactly they evolved, can't quite chart them month by month, but as you, they evolved, you can see the difference in which he became more and more misogynist, uh, in my opinion, after about 1936, right in that year, and 36 to 38 codified his, his use of dismembered doll parts or mannequin parts. And I think his role has been underestimated. I think that because his photographs are small and inexpensive, that they had quite an impact that hasn't been integrated into the overall picture. But more than that, I want to show, just as a woman myself, I tried to visualize what it was like to walk into this exhibition or that surrealist exhibition or that one. And the one in 1938 in Paris is the one that, that got me. I mean, as a woman, did I really feel comfortable walking through the first gallery in which there were 16 mannequins lined up along a kind of narrow hallway in various degrees of nudity, some of them quite fascinating and funny, and some of them like the one who whose hands were tied and shall we say, uh, the offensive sexual text was trailing on a piece of paper from her bound hands. Well, maybe that titillates titillates a lot of men, but personally, I think it makes most women uncomfortable. These are life-size mannequins, and you're seeing them face-to-face, eye-to-eye. So I was just trying to bring out in the narrative the degree to which that was not, I would call, conducive to female, a female definition that is anything other than sexual, and that bothered me. Uh, But at the same time, I didn't want it to dominate the show, which is why I segregated it into the Giacometti and the the narrow photographic gallery. Uh, Because too often, you'll hear people say that that's all there was. Well, there wasn't. And if I may say, the last the last part of it was is after you walk through this narrow hallway of Belmer photographs, you turn the corner and there's a new row of photographs by various women photographers, women surrealist or surrealist affiliated. That actually I would have liked to have had more of those examples, but again, they're in European museums and they're often unique prints and some of them are faded. But that's the idea. I wanted to show that there were women, some of them, who pushed back. Dora Morrow was one of them, which uh, Picasso's mistress is kind of poetic justice, I thought. And Claude Cahoon, who's always being written about uh, because of her sexuality, being a lesbian and so forth, that to me was of no interest, the biographical aspects. But what she did in her photographs, I see as almost a deliberate rebuff to Belmer in 1936 through 37 and 38. So I don't know, I can't prove it, but it's really, really fascinating and tempting. To oversimplify a bit, the show ends with David Smith. Why was he the right way to end a show on surrealist sculpture? Actually, David Smith, he's like Ernst in some ways. and he's I think he's an unsung hero, but in a different 
way. David Smith didn't even get to Paris until 1935, and then it was very briefly. He was a far more intellectual artist than he's usually given credit for, especially in those early years, the, the late 30s and through the 40s. And I view him as really the key figure in making the transition from American surrealist sculptures, Calder, Noguchi, Cornell, to what would become post-war, post-World War II, American sculpture, sometimes known as the direct metal movement. You know, the big David Smiths that you see from his last years in the 60s, the purely abstract ones, they were part of a very long development that started with Picasso and Gonzalez on one hand and surrealism on the other. And frankly, I would really love to do an exhibition on David Smith and surrealism because there's a lot more there than most people realize. And a good many of the sculptures that he made are remain in private collections. So he he dealt with sexuality. He dealt with relationships with women. He dealt with memories. He dealt with a kind of blend of, of abstraction and yet just recognizable enough that their metaphoric nature or impact or meaning comes through. And that, of course, works its way out into the last Greenbergian abstractions. But when you look at sculptures between about 1944 and 1954, maybe even up to 56, but definitely through 54, there's a lot of his reworking of surrealism into something different, into what we think of as post-war aesthetics. Valerie Fletcher, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for asking me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.